Welcome to the Collins Hill Pulpit Podcast, a ministry of Collins Hill Baptist Church of Lawrenceville, Georgia. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you Bible messages that are relevant to the day and age in which we live. These messages have been preached from the pulpit of Collins Hill Baptist Church in recent days. Now, here is today's message. Today I want to bring you a message that I've entitled, The Savior of Christmas. Of course, if you've been here, we've looked at the setting of Christmas. Then we looked at the shepherds of Christmas. And then we we stopped, we paused, and last week we looked at precious ponderings, the thing in verse 19 that Mary might have pondered in her heart. But today we come to the Savior of Christmas. The Savior of Christmas. I want to ask you a question. How many of you have heard or even said yourself, you ready for this? Are you ready? Have you, maybe have you said this? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Maybe your, maybe your children have said that. Maybe you have grandkids that might have said that. Are we there yet? Look, I'm telling you, the patience that is required for a long, unending 40-minute car ride is unmatched. I'm telling you. It's kind of funny, when we were driving on the way over here, I'm going to tell on myself. And when, I, when we were driving over here this morning, Savannah, me and Savannah, we were, we were riding down right there on Buford Drive or Highway right past the mall. And, you know, everyone there is such not so kind and nice as they drive. And, and I was going, I don't know, 45, 46, something around there. I was going the speed limit, for the record. Um, whatever it was, that's what I was driving. And there was a car that, man, I'm telling you, they were right there at that light, and they just pulled right on in front of me, okay? And you know me, of course, you know, that is just the nicest thing that anybody can do to you. And it was so kind of them, and of course, I told them, I said, that is so kind of you. Thank you so much, you know. And Savannah said, Landon, you need to practice, practice, okay, she's talking about patience, okay, you know. And uh, I, I, I didn't practice it very much. But I tell you, one of the hardest things to do is to be patient, is to wait. I tell you, when my phone takes just a quarter of a second longer to load something than I want it to, I'm about ready to throw it across the room, you know. I remember when we first got, uh, we had a family computer at our house. And I mean, I was young, six or seven, but I remember this. We had, uh, we had the old Wi-Fi, I think it was called DSL, is that, is that right? And uh, it took forever to load. And then when it would load really quick, I was like, man, this is great. You know, I was, you know, instead of sitting there for 20 minutes, you sat there for five minutes and it loaded. You know, it was really wonderful. But now, if it's not right then when we need it, then, man, I'm telling you. It's hard to be patient sometimes. It's hard to wait. As we come to Luke chapter 2, verse 25, we see a man who's been waiting. He's been waiting for quite a long time. In fact, he had been waiting his entire life. Even beyond that, we see the nation of Israel. They had been waiting for 400 years for God to once again come and to interact with mankind. If you go to the, to, to the middle of your Bible, and of course not the middle, that'd be around Psalm 118, but, but, but by the middle I mean between Malachi and Matthew. The last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament, there's about a time period of 400 years. They call those the silent years. In, in those years, God did not, in, like He had before and like He was going to, interact with mankind. Before, He had spoken through His prophets, through, through different ways. 
And then, of course, we know in the New Testament he was going to send his son. He had sent an angel to, to declare that a son would be born and it would be the Messiah. But for those silent years, it was 400 years, four generations of people that were waiting. They, they, were, they were in a, a time where they had to be patient. Now, was God still alive and working? Yes, he was, but he was not recognized as working. You see, God was put on the shelf, put over on the side, and the world just... They live the way they want to. Individuals, they still serve the Lord. We, we, there was always a remnant that was left over. But on a national, worldwide level, God was silent in His usage of certain nations. Then we come here, even beyond that, even beyond those 400 years, but, but for 4,000 years up to this point, the entire world had been waiting for the Messiah waiting for a, a Savior that would come, that was promised in Genesis chapter number 3, verse 15, the one that would come and, and have his heel bruised, but, but would bruise the head of Satan. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Go to Genesis chapter number 3. If you, if you reach your cover of your Bible, you've gone too far. And if you're in Revelation, you've gone the wrong way. But Genesis chapter number 3, very front of your Bible... Verse number 15, I encourage you, if you haven't, to, to mark it or just to put a little note next to it. The Bible says in Genesis 3, verse number 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Now, what is this talking about? Well, we know that Adam and Eve, they've sinned in the garden. God told them, don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and you'll live. But if you don't, you will, you, you will die. And then we come here and he's and they have sinned and Satan, he is speaking to uh, Adam and Eve. He's speaking to Satan. He says, and I will put enmity between thy between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There's a big old fancy Bible college word called the proto evangelium. Basically what that means, it's the very first mention of the gospel. Genesis 3.15 gives us a picture, gives us a prophecy, a promise of one that would come. And it was this Messiah. And for 4,000 years, they had been waiting for this Messiah to come. Look at Luke chapter number 2, verse 11. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. They had been waiting, waiting and waiting and waiting 4,000 years, 400 years. And then we come here. In verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. For thousands of years, the people of this world had been waiting for this day to come. They had been patiently, expectantly waiting for the day when the Savior would come into this world. Satan, he tried through Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He tried to, to, to weed out the Jewish people. Even way before that, if you go back to Genesis chapter number 1 and, and, and then chapter number 3 as we see the promise of the Savior, but you continue on and you see Cain and Abel. Satan tried to rid the world of this promised Messiah by Cain killing Abel. Abel was the one from whom the Messiah would have to come by, of course, because Cain, but then Cain murdered him, and so God had to raise up Seth. And it was from Seth, if you trace it all the way back, that the Messiah came from. But then you go forward to Exodus and, and Pharaoh and the Egyptians and Pharaoh had, had brought the nation of Israel under, under his slavery and, they, and he was trying to weed them out. 
He, he tried to weed them out by saying any, any boy under two years old should be killed. Satan had been trying and trying and trying. And then you fast forward and you come to the kings. You come to the, to the time when a, a, a wicked queen in, it came to the nation of Israel and killed every single Jewish person. But there was one little boy that was left over. There was one little Jewish boy that would become king by the name of Joash. And Joash, he became king of Israel. And it was from him, if you look at the lineage of Jesus Christ, that Joash is in there. The entire redemption history and the redemptive timeline of the entire world rested at this point on this one young Jewish boy that was left over. I think about the book of Esther. They, they tried to rid the world of the Jewish people. See, this was Satan trying his best to stop this day from happening. Satan was working overtime for hundreds and thousands of years to stop this day from happening. But on this day, the Savior was born. The Savior of Christmas was born. The Savior had come. And although Satan tried to stop this day, he could not. He was not able to. Any power that Satan may have, God has much more power. The Savior had come. The Savior of Christmas had been born into this world. You see, when we could not get to God, when we in our sin could not get to God, God came to us. God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, so that we could receive the adoption of sons. What does that mean? It means that Jesus came so that you and I could be saved. But we see that in this history, in this, in this context of the story of verse 25 of Luke chapter 2, in the context of the entire history of mankind, Satan had tried his best to stop this day from happening, but he was not able to. God had said this day would happen, and God made sure that it did. I want you to notice with me three truths about the Savior of Christmas. Three truths about the Savior of Christmas. Look here at verse 25. We're going to read... And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was, notice that word, revealed. It was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost. Number one, we notice the revelation about the Savior. The revelation about the Savior. Anything and everything that we know about God... Is, has been revealed by Himself. Without God revealing Himself to us, we would not know God. How does God reveal Himself to us? Well, He does it in, in different ways. In fact, I'll give you three ways God reveals Himself from three chapters in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, God reveals Himself through the creation. The Bible says that when we look at the creation... That man is left without excuse. You and I cannot look at the creation. We can't look at the trees, the grass, the stars, the moon, the sun, the planets, and say there is no God. No, based on creation, when we, when we look at what God has created, the Bible says that the firmament showeth His handiwork. You, you see God in the creation. God reveals Himself to us according to Romans 1, by creation. According to Romans 2, God reveals Himself through conscience. Now, those of you that have children or have had children that you've raised, 
I want to ask you, I wonder, did you have to teach your children how to lie? No. Did you have to teach your children how to be disrespectful? Did you have to teach your children how to disobey you? No, of course not. You know why? It came naturally. From the moment that they're born, as beautiful and as cute as they are, you know what they are? They're little sinners. We're all born sinners. Every single person who's ever been born was born a sinner. It is our nature. We are born into sin, born sinners. But our conscience, the Bible says in Romans 2, the Bible says that the law of God, it's written on our hearts. God's law, what's right, not lying, not stealing, not committing adultery, not, not, not being jealous of others, not, not envying, not coveting our brother's wife or the things that he possesses. Those things are written on our hearts. And when, when you lie as a child, you know that you shouldn't lie. Nobody's taught you that you shouldn't lie. But you just know that you shouldn't lie. You know why? Because God has written on your conscience what is right and what is wrong. And God has written on everyone's conscience that there is a God. Of course, we know that we have to be taught certain things. But nobody, nobody goes to school and is taught, oh, by the way, I know it's against your nature to believe this, but there is a God. No, what are children taught, especially at public schools nowadays? They're taught that well, everything just happened to come into existence. But, but that very thought, it's against our nature. You know why? Because God has put in our conscience the fact that somebody and something created everything. It's within our conscience. God has revealed himself to each and every person by means of their conscience. Those are what we call the general revelations of God. Everybody anywhere can look out, see the creation, can look within, see their conscience, and know that there is a God. It's proven. We know that there is a God deep down inside. But then the third revelation, it's really a specific revelation, a special revelation. And we see in Romans chapter 3 that God's revealed Himself through Scripture. The Bible that I hold in my hand, God has revealed Himself to me by way of this right here. I can know that God exists by creation. I can know God exists by conscience. But I can know God by this book right here. Now the Bible teaches and tells that before this Bible was completed, God spoke in various ways. The Bible says in sundry times and in diverse manners in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1, God interacted, God spoke with man before the completion of this. But then now that this has been completed, this is how God speaks to us today. God won't come to you in a vision and say, look, I want you to lie to this person. Well, first of all, that's against the written, revealed word of God. But also God doesn't reveal himself. God doesn't speak to us in dreams and visions like he used to. Why not? Because now we have a completed word of God. We have scripture. God has revealed himself through scripture. And so when we want to know, well, what does God think about something? Guess what we need to do? We need to open His Word. So we see that God has revealed Himself. And we see in revealing Himself, God specifically revealed Himself to this man named Simeon or Simon. Now we don't know much about Simon. But we see, first of all, that it was the revelation about the Savior. Letter A, it was revealed to Simon. Revealed to Simeon. The Bible, it doesn't tell us much about this man. 
It doesn't tell us about his family, although some scholars believe that Simeon was actually the father of Gamaliel, which, if you know your Bible, Gamaliel was the one whom Saul, who ended up being Paul, was trained up under. He said he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Some believe that Simeon was Gamaliel's father. But as we, as we look at this, we don't, we don't see his family history. We don't see his education background, although he was most likely extremely intelligent. We don't see his work history. We don't know. We don't know a lot about this man. But what the Bible does tell us is what, God, what counts with God. See, God records what matters to him. Every word in our Bibles, God meant to put there. God designed that each word that we have in our Bible is put there. And so when we look at Simon and we look at what was revealed about him, each word matters. So notice with me some adjectives that the, that the Bible, just, as, as God the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, describes this man Simon. Notice, he was, number one, he was just. He was a just man. What does just mean? Well, just means to be upright in moral character. He was upright in his moral character. He was a just person. He was just. One commentator said it this way. He steadily regulated all his conduct by the law of his God. What does that mean? How would, you, how would we put that in our terms? What Simon did was he regulated every decision he made and he regulated his entire life based on this Bible. They had the Old Testament. The Old Testament was, was already given. The, the law of Moses was given. And what Simon did was he studied it. He read it. He memorized it. Most likely he had it memorized. And what he did was he said, okay, the Bible says to do this. And so in order to be just, he was just because he said, oh, I've got to do this, so I'm going to do this. The Bible says not to do this, so I'm not going to do that. Simon obeyed the word of God. You may wonder, well, how in the world can we be just today? Well, we need to use the word of God. We, we need to use the Bible as the roadmap of our conduct. The Word of God needs to be the roadmap that, that defines and decides the way that we act. If we want to be considered just, we must obey the Word of God. Have you ever wondered why our world is in such a mess today? Why everything seems to be going to, to, just, to just terrible sin all the time? It's because we have stopped living by the morals that God has already established. We've stopped living according to the truth that God has revealed. The nation of Israel, when God instituted the kings, when, when God had raised up a king, the king, you know what the king had to do? It said, God, God told every king that they must write a copy of the law by themselves. They must write their own copy. And they were to read through it. They were to study it every single day. And you know what happened? You know when the nation of Israel and all these folks, all the kings, they started to fall into sin? You know what was the first thing that went? The first thing that went was writing the Word of God. The first thing that went was following the precepts and the standards that the Word of God set forth. You wonder why we're in such a mess today? It's because we've stopped living according to this Bible. And of course, by the way, we can't expect a lost world to live according to the Word of God. No, the reason why our world is in such a mess today is because Christians have stopped living by this book. Christians have stopped guiding their conduct by the, the standard that is the Word of God. 
If we want to be considered just, we must obey the word of God. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly. But to do justly. To, to walk in moral character. To have integrity. To follow along in the word of God. And to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. That's what God requires we do. And Simon, Simeon, was a man that did this. He was a just man. Not only was he just, but the Bible says here in verse 25, and the same man was just and devout. He was a devout man. What does that mean? He was devout. He added a pious heart to a righteous conduct. He added a heart that had the love for the Lord and then outwardly worked it out. You see, inwardly he was devoted to the Lord. Therefore, outwardly he was able to be just. You see, the Christian life and the Christian walk, it's an inside-out kind of thing. When the inside is right, then the outside will be right. But you know what? Uh, what many people think that happens, what, what they think happens is that, oh, if my outside's right, then it'll make my inside right. If, if I do a certain amount of good works, then, then, then on the outside, then, then the inside's going to have to be right. If I do enough good things, then, then, then God will save me. If, if I work enough for the Lord, if I join enough churches in my lifetime, if, if I do X, Y, Z, if I'm baptized, then, then, then obviously, then the inside's going to be right. God will make the inside right when I, when I give Him the outside. Well, no, 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 that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when the, out, when the inside is right, then the outside will be right. The Bible talks about working out your own salvation. Now, I know you may not be able to believe this, but that word work out is similar to is, is what we get the idea of literally working out physical exercise. I do a lot of that. As you can tell, bodybuilder. Peak specimen, I'm telling you. But, when, but, but it says to work out your salvation. What does that mean? It means to work outwardly what God has already worked on the inside. It doesn't say work in your own salvation. If it said that, then that would mean we had to work to have our salvation. But because we are saved, we work out our salvation. We work the outside out because the inside's right. You can't gain muscle. You can't be become a bodybuilder and eat just a whole bunch of junk food. You'd be a fat bodybuilder. You would be building your body, but just not with muscle. I don't know why I started talking about bodybuilding, whatever. I started thinking about myself and I couldn't help. But the Christian life, it is an inside out thing. We work from the inside out. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We need to be not only just, but devout. Simon was this man, and he was a just man. He was devout. He was just. He had everything going on on the outside. He, he acted right. But it started with his devotion to the Lord inwardly. As we come up on the new year, I just I, I, I have I have made my plans 
already, of course, to to read through the Bible. I want to do a couple different Bible reading plans. I encourage you, take 15 minutes a day. Read through your Bible in a year. That's all it takes. Read four or five chapters every day. You'll, You'll get through the end of your Bible. But, you know, doing that outward thing is not going to make me more righteous than you. I know people, in fact, I'm sure that you can relate to this as well. I've I've done it myself. I've sat down. I've been mad at somebody. I've been unforgiving to somebody. I've I've been thinking about everything else in the day. And I sat down and I read my chapters and I got up and I walked on like nothing else changed. Nothing else happened. You see, we, we did a whole bunch of outward stuff. Maybe, maybe you've come to church, and, but your inside has been rotten to the core. Maybe, you, maybe you've been in church for a while, or maybe your family is, knows the Lord as Savior, or maybe, maybe your grandparents know the Lord as your Savior, and you're saying, oh man, man, everybody around me on the outside is right, then obviously, hey, that, that'll kind of rub off on me and, and kind of get to the inside. No, you see, when an apple is rotten in the middle... Sometimes you can't tell it until you what, take a bite into it and you see, oh man, there's a worm or that's rotten. The outside can look so pretty, but the inside is filthy. I'm reminded of a story of the great King Tut. Stories told of he had this great, big, beautiful burial place. I mean, it was gorgeous. It was gold overlaid. I mean, it was solid gold. I mean, I mean, he had all these jewels and rubies. I mean, it was beautiful on the outside, this tomb that he was in. But you know, if, if you were to strip everything away, you were to open the door, you were to walk up to where the body of King Tut lay, you know what? On the inside of that beautiful, wonderful, spectacular tomb is nothing but dead man's bones. And you may think that you're here today and you say, oh, I'm pretty good. I I do some good things. I've worked pretty good. I obey my parents. Or, or no, you know, I do some things that, that, man, God, he's really proud of me for. But on the inside, you're nothing but dead bones, spiritually speaking. The Bible says that if you're here and you're lost without without Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins against God. You are spiritually dead. You say, no, Landon, I'm kicking. See, I, I can move. My heart's beating. Hey, we're glad. Don't, don't stop beating while you're here. Ever, really. But spiritually, on the inside, you're nothing but full of dead bones. The outside looks great, but the inside is dead. The Bible says that the only way that you can have life and have life more abundantly is to be regenerated. To give life. The inside before you're saved. You're dead. But God the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He moves in and he regenerates you. He gives you a new nature. The Holy Spirit takes residence in your heart. And if you're here and you've never asked Jesus Christ to save you. Then you are what the Bible says. Dead in your trespasses and sins. And no matter how devout you think you are, no matter how just you think you are, if you don't have Jesus, you're lost and on your way to a devil's hell. But we see this man, Simon, he was just, he was devout. But number three, we see another thing about him is that he he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? What does that phrase mean? it's, It's a title. It's a wonderful title that was given to the Messiah. 
to the coming Messiah. The word consolation, it gives the idea of comfort. Maybe you're familiar with the Holy Spirit. He is the comforter. The, the, the Greek word that we find here is the consolation. It's the, it's the word that is paraclete. In fact, if you go to 1 John chapter 1 or chapter 2, verse 1, we find that Jesus is our advocate. That word advocate is one that stands on behalf of, that, that takes up the mantle for, that speaks for another. And you know what that word is? It's paraclete. You see, Jesus, He was the comforter. He is the advocate that we have. He was the one that would bring comfort to the nation of Israel. He was the consolation of Israel. You see, the nation of Israel for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years had been oppressed by some outward nation. By some outward body, they had felt the oppression of these nations. And they were looking forward to the Messiah that would come, that would set them free, that would bring them comfort. And this man, Simon, he was just, he was devout, and he was waiting for this Messiah. But just like the Israelites, if you are not saved, you are oppressed. You are oppressed by sin. And only Jesus Christ can break you free from the chains of sin. Only Jesus Christ can break you free from the chains of sin. There's only one that brought hope and comfort to the nation of Israel. There's only one that brought hope and comfort to this man, Simon. And it was Jesus Christ. And the same applies true today. There is only one that can bring hope, comfort, and forgiveness of sins. And that's Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're not saved, I pray that today would be the day you'd give your life to Jesus. Not only do we see that the Savior was revealed to Simon, but we also see that the Savior was revealed by the Holy Spirit. He was revealed by the Holy Spirit. Number one, we, we see that there was a guarantee that was made. A guarantee that was made. We see in verse 26, And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Holy Spirit told him, You're not going to die until you see the Messiah. You will not die until you see the Anointed One. You will not die until you see the consolation of Israel. What an amazing promise. What an amazing guarantee that was made. But not only do we see the guarantee made, but we see the guidance given. The guidance that was given. Notice in verse 27, And he came by the Spirit into the temple. Do, do you think that it was just a coincidence that Simon, at this moment of time, just randomly appeared at the temple? No, of course not. The Holy Spirit prompted him, led him, said, he, he, he knocked on the door of his heart and he said, hey, you should go to the temple. And Simon said, all right, here I go. Now I wonder, each of us that are saved, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The Holy Spirit prompts us, leads us to do certain things. Maybe it's to hand a track to that person. Maybe it's to call somebody and say, look, I'm sorry, I did something wrong. I need you to forgive me. Maybe it's to call somebody and say, look, you probably have never thought about this, but I forgive you for whatever it is. The Holy Spirit, he prompts our lives. He, he leads us. He guides us. The Holy Spirit guided Simon at the moment where he needed to be, and Simon went. Now, I wonder, if God were to have prompted you to go to the temple at this time, would you have? You say, well, of course, 
Of course, I'm spiritual. I would have. Well, let's make it more personal. Let's put that to the test. When the Holy Spirit tells you to witness to that person, do you? When the Holy Spirit says, hey, I want you to be involved in that ministry at the church. Do you fight him? Do you buck him? Or do you submit to it? When, when the Holy Spirit says, you need to call that person and tell them X, Y, or Z. Do you do it? Do, do you obey the Holy Spirit? Do, do you follow the promptings and the leadings of the Holy Ghost? If we wouldn't now, then we wouldn't have then. We look at this man, Simon, and he, he, there was nothing special about him. He was just a man like, like me. He, he was just human like you and me. But the Bible tells us that he was just, he was devout. He waited for the consolation of Israel. He was led by the Spirit. Can I tell you that you and I have access to the same Holy Spirit that Simon had access to? You and I have access to the same Bible. We have access to the same thing, the same power through Jesus Christ that he had. I wonder, do we follow the promptings, the guidance of the Holy Spirit? We ought to be sensitive to his leading. Not only do we see the revelation about the Savior, but we also see the recognition of the Savior. The recognition of the Savior. Look here. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, verse 27. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. We see the recognition of the Savior. Simon, he had recognized that this was the Savior. This was the Messiah. This is the one that he was waiting for. And he did three things. Notice he praised God. That phrase, he blessed God. He took that spotlight and he turned it up on God. He said, God, I bless you. I praise you. I've seen the Savior. You know, when we see Jesus, it ought to cause us just to praise him. When you and I get a glimpse of who God is, we ought to praise him. We see that he praised God, but not only that, he had peace. He had peace. Notice he says, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Basically what he's saying is that, Lord, I can die now. You can go ahead and take me home. I've seen what you promised that I needed to see. I've seen it. The one that I have been trusting in, the one that I have been waiting for, I've seen. You can take me home. You know, that word peace, we've, we're all looking for it. Some of you here today, you're looking for peace. You've, you, you've sought for it in, in everything other than Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, there's only peace found in one name, and it's Jesus. You don't know peace until you know the Prince of Peace. You don't know peace until you know Jesus. We see here that he had peace. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. He was, Simon was waiting for Jesus. He was waiting for the Messiah. And when he found him, he had peace. If you're looking for peace, guess what? You found it. When you find Jesus, you found peace. We see not only did he praise God, he had peace, but also he remembered the promise. He remembered the promise. Simon was given a promise 
according to thy word. If God makes you a promise, he'll keep it. God's promises are as good as gold and worth far more. God's promised. God's promised that he would keep us. God's promised that he would meet every need. God's promised that he would use us if we submitted and surrendered our life to him. The question is, are we doing those things? Are we doing those things? God's promised us. Simon remembered the promise God gave him. He knew God couldn't lie. The Bible teaches us that God, when he makes a promise, he keeps it. He made a promise that a savior would come in Genesis 3.15. And no matter what came, that promise was going to be kept. Now, what about your own life? Maybe God's made you a promise to provide every need. And you say, Landon, I just don't understand how he's going to be able to keep that promise. You don't know what's going on. Can I tell you? I don't know what's going on. I don't know all the ins and outs of your situation. But I can promise you this, that if God's made you a promise, he'll keep it. If God has made you a promise, he will keep it. Maybe the first promise that you need to accept and realize that God made is that if you ask him to save you, he'll save you. That's the first promise God's made to you. If you're not saved, God will keep that promise. We see the recognition of the Savior, but number three, we see lastly the reach of the Savior. The reach of the Savior. In verse 30, we see, For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Have you seen salvation today? Have you seen the salvation today? Verse 31, Which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. We see that this Savior of Christmas, it was to all people. You ready for another Bible college definition? I've already given it to you before. You know the answer. You know what all means? All. And that's all that all means. He was a Savior that came to all. Then we come to verse 32, and I want us to notice two truths about it. Such such an amazing verse. We see that a light to lighten the Gentiles... And the glory of thy people Israel. Notice with me number, letter, number A. Sure, we'll go with it. To Gentiles. It was to Gentiles. He had a reach to the Gentiles. The Bible describes the Gentiles as being in darkness. You say, what are the Gentiles? What, what is that word? Well, basically you have two groups of people that God defined in the word of God. You had those that were Jews and those that were not. If you're a Jewish person, you're a Jew. If you're not, you're a Gentile. Okay? So we see that it was a light to lighten the Gentiles, those that were not Jews. And the Bible describes that Gentiles are in darkness. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, The land of Zabulon and the, light, and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Now, of course, we find here in Matthew, he's speaking of the Jewish people. But he's also speaking there were Gentiles that lived in this nation. There were Gentiles that lived in this area. And the Gentiles that lived in darkness and even the Jewish people that lived in darkness... That there was a Savior, there was a light that came into the world, that lightened up the world. 
We see that as we look back, we know that darkness is a picture of sin. Vine's Dictionary describes darkness as this of spiritual or moral darkness emblematic of sin as a condition of moral or spiritual depravity. If you're here and you're lost, you are living in darkness. The light of Jesus Christ has not moved in. Inside, you're not only dead, but you're dark. There is darkness that resides in you if you're lost. If you're saved, you have the light of Jesus living inside of you. But if you're saved and you're acting like you're lost, you're walking in darkness. We see in the book of 1 John, he describes to us. Let me turn over here. In fact, I encourage you to turn over with me. 1 John chapter number 1. 1 John chapter number 1. First John chapter number 1, the Bible says in verse number 5, This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. Okay, so, so this verse, God is light and there's no darkness in Him. There's no sin in God. God is sinless. God is perfect. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, so if we say that we have fellowship with God, if we have a relationship with God and walk in darkness, so if we say, oh, I've got fellowship with God, but we walk in a way, we live in a way of sin, the Bible says that we lie and do not the truth. The Bible says that if you say you have fellowship with God, so you say you have a relationship with God and you walk in darkness, live in darkness, you're a liar and you do not the truth. Don't shoot the messenger. That's what the Bible says. Then verse 7, but if we walk in the light, so if we live in the light, if we live righteously, justly, devoutly towards God, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. You say, Landon, how can I walk in the light? How can I, after I'm saved, how can I walk in the light? Will you walk in the light by trusting and living in Jesus' righteousness? God is the light. Jesus is the light. And when we're saved, Jesus, He implants within us His light. He cleanses us from our sin. He, he wraps us in His robe of righteousness. And we can have fellowship with God because Jesus Christ. We see that the Bible teaches that Jesus is light. When you are saved by Jesus, you are brought out of the darkness of sin into his light. And then when you walk with God daily and in fellowship with him, you walk in that light. You live in that light. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 describes this darkness, describes what God did to the nation of Israel, what God did to the Gentiles, this light to lighten the Gentiles. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. God, when He saved you, He's called you out of darkness. He was a light that came and brought light to the Gentiles. Not only that, but He was the glory 
of thy people Israel. So we see letter A to the Gentiles, but letter B to Israel. A writer once said, the first offer of salvation was made to the Jews. Of course, we know that he came into his own and his own received him not. John chapter 1. But Jesus was born among the Jews to them which had given the, been given the prophecies respecting him. And his first ministry was among them. Hence, he was their glory, their honor, their light. But it is a subject of special gratitude to us that the Savior was given also for the Gentiles. Jesus, he came to the Jewish people. He came into his own, but his own received him not. And salvation, the redemptive plan, of course, it didn't take God by surprise. It wasn't plan B that his son would be rejected of, of the nation of Israel. But, it, but, but the Messiah came from the nation of Israel. That's why we love the nation of Israel as Christians. We love Israel. We defend Israel. We back Israel because they are God's chosen people. They, it is from them that we have our Messiah, that we have our Bibles. The Bible says in Genesis chapter number 12, he's, God's speaking to Abraham. He says that from you, all nations will be blessed. If you're here today and you're saved, you can say, I'm blessed. You know why you're blessed? Because of Jesus. And because of from the nation of Israel. Because from the Jewish people, the glory of Israel, the Messiah came forth. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Bible message. We pray that you've received a blessing and we look forward to being with you again in the future.